All right, while you're still in the middle of it, let's thank the Grins, who is this band that was up here. Give them a big hand. How fun is that? Yeah. Rob has a bunch of moving pieces that is the, they're kind of sub-Grins or something. I'm not exactly sure that he, and so it was super fun to have. I loved having this uh, bass up here. How fun was that? That was very cool. And uh, yeah, just a lot of, just great, great music. So I hope you had, and I also loved how he got you to, remember the invitation? Okay, how many within the last year? All he was doing was trying to get a standing ovation. I mean, that was obvious. So it's like 20 years, 25 years. Yeah, it was pretty hilarious. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do today. So I want to jump in so that we can try to move through this because we're at a critical place in the scripture. The uh, entire Sermon on the Mount, which is probably a compilation put together by Matthew, to accomplish the information about the entire idea of kingdom of heaven. Matthew puts this together because that gets offered to us in chapter 3. We went through the Beatitudes this summer and said, hey, this was a great reversal where Jesus took the standard wisdom flipped it over on its head and said, this is actually what's going on. Then there's this little section where he explains his relationship to the law. It's actually better to think the law's relationship to him. He explains that up and sets it up. And then he sets up a bunch more reversals where he takes, you've heard this said, but now I say to you, we're going to start into that today. And we're going to talk about murder. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this passage let you pick up, I'm going to skip over a couple of verses in the middle, but I want to catch the critical key that unlocks. If, Scott, you go up on the top left and it's got the little round black thing with the white X in it, push that, that'll clear the screen, and then you can go back and hit that button. It's not Scott's fault. I had to recruit him literally at the last minute. Thank you. So we're going to read this here, get some information Remember, these first couple lines are literally the key to unlock what Jesus is going to say in this entire sermon right now. So let's read this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's the key right in there. And if you want to learn a little bit more, we talked about that more fully last week, but I'm going to pick it up and pull it into this next section. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a harsh sentence, is it not? Okay, let's go to the, to the next slide. You've heard it said to the people, our ancestors of long ago, you shall not murder. Very simple sentence. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's actually a little bit of an addition. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anybody qualify on the angry thing in here? Yeah, thank you for your honesty. If you're not raising your hand, now you're liable for lying. Okay. If you're angry, again, anyone who deeply insults a brother, your Bible may say, says racha to them. It is simply just a deep insult. Deeply insults a brother or sister is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anybody thought of anybody as a fool lately? Anybody qualify there? Come on, there's more of you than that. 
If you're reading any of the rhetoric on political fields, this is all over the place. The other guy is always a fool in that case. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go to the next slide. First, go be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Notice all this discussion is set in a law court venue. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, judge to the officer, you'll be thrown into prison, I guarantee you, you'll pay every last red cent that you owe. Kind of harsh. Kind of harsh. Now, based on what Jesus has said about murder, anybody now who thought you were totally free and had never murdered anybody, anybody now realize maybe you're legal, legally responsible for murder on some level? Anybody willing to thank you very much? That My hand goes up as well. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is my, one of my greatest fears about handling a passage like this. And my fear is for you, personally, as to what you do with these verses. This is very indicative right now of how you read your Bible. If you tend to be very legalistic, very strict, if you grew up in a culture that says there's a very high value of Scripture, we have to read these letters and sentences and lines and pick out exactly what is a requirement for us to do, and that's how I have to read this. This just got to be really, really terrible bad news. Like, where's the good news in this? If you're saying, wow, I, I can't live up to that. Or if you're from the antinomian camp, anti being against nomos law, and you're saying, well, basically Jesus came to tell us that we're loved, and he just wanted to be kind, and he was gracious. And so well, the Bible doesn't, I don't read my Bible like looking for a bunch more stuff that's way more restrictive and harder. I'm looking for the feel-good stuff. I want to feel good about If that's what you did, this is not accomplishing the mission of feeling better about things. This is very indicative of how most of us typically receive information from the Bible. We do one of those two things. The problem is either one of those on their own is too extreme and it misses the point altogether of what Jesus is actually trying to do. The whole great reversal is not to either say, now this is going to be way harder for you. In fact, if you stop and think about it, does anybody qualify for the kingdom of God based on this description? Nobody qualifies. And he's just starting. He's going to pick up some more as we go forward into the 40-somethings in the verses. Or, if you say, well, maybe Jesus was really just trying to say, wow, that was way hard to be about the law. You, 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 uh, you, know, you don't have to worry about the law. That's okay. Why would he have told us at the beginning, I did not come to abolish the law. Not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So he didn't just say, what, we're gonna, what we need to do is just be nice to people and compassionate. We need to say everything is okay because it's all relative and it's all based on the circumstances. So nobody's going to set down any laws. That's a terrible idea as well. 
Neither of those line up with what this passage says, in essence. So my fear would be, to be honest with you, is that then the next thing that you do is one of two things. You either look for a way to squeeze out. (laughs) He's not talking to me because those words meant something else. Okay? Or you do the thing where you're just like, well, that's just too hard, and so I'm just going to ignore it. That's what we tend to do with these passages. What I want to help you do today is look at this through a different lens that starts in that idea of I did not come to abolish but to fulfill and then actually to be able to read these passages and understand, oh, that's what he's talking about. Because right now you feel like you're between a rock, right? Scott, put that uh, goofy little cartoon that I found. Now this guy's between a rock and a hard place. He's just come off of a sinking ship and he's holding on and he sees the island and then the island says, danger, quicksand. Now, by the way, I don't know that quicksand is really that big of a deal. Any of you ever really encountered any quicksand anywhere? I never have, but there's somebody who has. Most of us have never encountered any real quicksand. It seemed like it was going to be a big deal when I was a kid. Like we talked about quicksand all the time. But in this case, you're like, this poor guy, what is he supposed to do now? And right now, you may be thinking, based on what Jesus has said here, what am I supposed to do now? What in the world is going on here? I do want you to think through a couple things. First of all, when he said, let's go back to those verses, Scott, especially up at the top. Uh, When he is offering and talking about the kingdom, which comes up all the way through, What do you think that the people heard when he was talking about kingdom of God? When they heard the word kingdom, do you think that they would have thought, this is really only going to be about four people that are like Mother Teresa in all of history? No. If anything, they hear him as a Messiah who's offering himself in a kingdom form, it would be very much at least like what David did in the great glory days of Israel. It may even be what the Caesars had accomplished. I mean, they remember Caesar Augustus. Rome has assembled into one of the most amazing powers in the history of the world with a lot of people in it. So if Jesus says, this is what I'm teaching is I'm offering you the kingdom of God, but then he's holding up a standard, none of you will be entering the kingdom of heaven What is he doing here? Those two things seem to contradict each other. Is that what he means? How could it be a kingdom with no people in it? That can't possibly be what he's trying to do and say is restrict everybody from being qualified. Can't possibly be what he's doing. Doesn't even make logical sense. As this feeling of being stuck in the middle Uh, sometimes there's more going on that when you consider the whole picture that doesn't meet the eye and the equation at first. If you just take these on face value, this is terrible news. But the good news is there's something else going on in the background. There's a story about a person who gets into a taxi cab and they're in the back seat and of course then they're like, oh, I wonder where it's going on. So she reaches up to 
to get the attention of the driver and she taps him on the shoulder. The guy goes nuts. He literally like comes unglued. He loses control of the cab. He goes up on the curb. He about runs over three people with their dogs or whatever else. And it's like a train wreck. And then they're sitting there in the silence. <laughs> you can imagine with all the adrenaline going on. And she says, I am so sorry. I had no idea that just tapping someone on the shoulder would produce that kind of a response. He says, look, it is not your fault at all. I'm, this is literally my first day driving a cab. But for the last 25 years, I've been driving a hearse. Okay. Let you laugh a little bit, because it's worth it. But the good news is, there was something else going on behind the scenes, right? And that is what's going on in this passage, and all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. There's something else going on underneath. So let me ask you another question. What else could he have meant? If he didn't mean exactly this line, and go to the next uh, slide there, Scott. If he didn't mean, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm now going to make this way harder for you. What was he meaning? What could he have possibly meant? It's certainly worth considering that. Now, Paul, before we go any further, let me ask you, why does he go to murder first? You know the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, the Ten Commandments are, you get, anybody want to quote them? You'll get 50,000 extra points for your team. Now, the Ten Commandments are, don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any idols, graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Don't forget about the Sabbath day. Keep that holy. Then those are all between God and man. Then he goes into human relationships. Uh, honor your father and mother, whatever honor means. Right? Then, don't murder don't steal, don't, uh, let's see, what's after that? Don't lie, or uh, yeah, it's like don't bear false witness against your brother, and then don't covet your neighbor's stuff, right? So why would he pick this one first? Is there some kind of a mechanism going on? Because it would have been very easy for him to grab the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, and say, this is, we're just going to go through these. He's picked some of them, but not all of them. Here's what it seems like he is doing right here. He's taking a very concrete factor, don't kill your neighbor, right? That's very easy to tell whether you've done that or not. Very easy to put a metric on. It's also, it requires like 10,000 decisions to literally, especially in that day and age, to literally kill somebody next to you. Very concrete. What does Jesus do? He turns it into an abstract. He says, this is not as simple as just avoiding stabbing your neighbor next door. This is literally way more complicated than that. Way harder than that. Way more abstract. Because who can even tell what somebody's motives are when they say certain? What do they even have in the background? What is, what's happening inside of their relationship with this? This is all way in the background, in the abstract. Jesus takes this law, he does it, by the way, with the next step, and he takes some very concrete things and he makes them more abstract. Again, why would he do that? He's doing that to illustrate to us the 613 mitzvot, the teachings of the rabbis that you thought were the simple, plain and clear laws, do or don'ts, is way more, way more complicated in the background. 
This thing, when, we taught, when I said to you, I came to fulfill the law, by the way, we mentioned this last week, did he say I came to keep the law? Actually, if you look at the way he handled the Sabbath, he broke a bunch of mitzvot about the Sabbath. So he did not say I came to keep every letter and line of the law. I came to fulfill the law. How did he fulfill the law? This is the critical element. This is why this key unlocks what he's trying to get at. He says, I will come and all of what the law and the prophets and the whole Old Testament scripture meant to build was actually building up to me. I will come, I will fulfill it, and I ultimately, in the greatest tensional system that ever existed in history in an incident, Jesus is on the cross. It's the worst day and the best day in, in history, both at the same time. Who could have accomplished that other than Jesus? This is the critical piece. What he's trying to get at is, you, your fathers, Moses himself, could not have kept and fulfilled this law the way that I am going to fulfill it. The bad news is, at this point, they don't know what he means by that. The good news is, when Matthew puts this together, in retrospect, looking back with Peter, James, John, Paul, and saying, oh, that's what happened. That's what he meant when he said he came to fulfill the law. He was put in the most amazing position any of us could have possibly been in. He didn't break the law and therefore deserve to be punished like all these people deserve to be punished. He instead went to the cross on their behalf, fulfilled all of the atonement process, fulfilled all of the reconciliation process, showed that death is no longer in charge, but life is in charge when he was raised from the dead, and finally fulfilled redemption. He accomplished that. And the feeling that you get of wanting to squirt out, bail out, find an exit ramp, uh, whatever else, make this kind of soft pedal with this. He's like, don't worry with, don't even bother with that. That's not what I'm not, that's not at all what I'm asking you to do. In fact, in the redemptive process, this will get way harder. Way harder. This is not, I'm not here to teach you something that's easier you might live into a standard that no one can even imagine. Anybody see on the news just recently, was, I think it was just last weekend, uh, there was a girl who was running in New York City and a guy stabbed her to death, right? Did you see the response of her mother? Her mother went on the, on the news, in the media, and immediately said, I'm not the judge of the person who killed my daughter. In fact, I am choosing to offer him forgiveness. How in the world does somebody do that? Let me ask you this. Is that the law that she has to forgive? Does the law define anything remotely like that? In fact, rewind with me. How many of you have watched Law & Order, the TV show? Anybody watch any of those episodes? It's week after week of the tension of did this person really do this, did this person not. Think about the process related to murder. And the, first of all, it's fascinating that the title is Law and Order. That's what it's really about. 
But let's think about the process. So a prosecuting attorney has to build a case. What do they have to establish? They have to establish, first of all, we have a dead person. Second of all, this didn't happen naturally. Third of all, you know, they go through the process. Who's likely responsible? It's almost always the wife or the husband, right? I mean, isn't almost the case? It's somebody who's very close by because nobody else would want to kill this person on purpose. Then they have to establish, did this person have motive? What's the benefit to them if they kill this person? Then they have to say, okay, did they have opportunity? Did they really have this weapon? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They come all the way to the end, find a, a conclusion. If they declare the person guilty, they get put in a ridiculously misnamed correctional facility because by no stretch of the imagination does this whole process correct anything. It doesn't correct anything at all. The following of the law, even if you kept it, or reestablish order by letting the law play out in a justice process, is not redemptive on any level. All it does is reestablish the facts of the truth, the baseline, if you will, of what society is about. Here's the truth with the law, ladies and gentlemen. Even if we kept it letter and law, all it is is a backstop that keeps us from falling off the cliff into total anarchy and chaos. It does not produce righteousness at all. The fact that you didn't murder somebody today does not make you any more righteous than you were six months or six years ago. All it is is the base line. It's almost like a retaining wall, you know, on a beach. The law is like that. It just holds things in place, keeps stuff from washing away and become an absolute craziness. So if you run all the way through the law, even related to murder, and you go to the tribunal and you get accused and you pay every single penny, so what? Nobody comes back. The dead person doesn't come back. In fact, a bunch of your family, if you get put in jail, a bunch of your family who were innocents pay for it. That, how is that good? The, the people who have lost the person, they don't l- literally get some sense of, oh, this is now all okay. That's not how it works at all. In fact, the only way that it's redemption is if something happens that goes way beyond the simplicity of the law and says, I now want to participate in grace, mercy, kindness, hope, joy, love. That's what love looks like. If you literally take love and bring it all the way down into the sewer of saying, we just need to get rid of law, that is a travesty to love. The truth is, love looks like this. It may be way more restrictive than the law. Way harder. Way more intense. How do you accomplish that? And that's the key. This is what kingdom of God type people do. Why? They're not trying to just keep the law to have a relationship with God. They don't see the law as something that is my baseline and if I fill these things in and I've, oh, I've found all these verses, so I live into this and so I, I do that. 
or, oh, I just take God as, and his love for me and it's just so wonderful and it makes me feel good. They literally say, no, I have an absolute responsibility to look at every single law that has ever been thought of and probably ratchet it up a few notches to accomplish redemptive thinking in the world. And you cannot possibly do that on your own. Even if you manage to go through a lifetime without ever stabbing your neighbor, you will never in your lifetime manage to be a person who literally sees the world through redemptive eyes unless you're connected to the one who fulfilled the law. And that's what he is saying all along. That's why the focus shifts to him and then comes back to us because he says, this is not possible for you to do by yourself. You are dependent upon me. You will get this grace from your community of fellow believers. You will get the courage and the strength from the Holy Spirit who will give you guidance and direction to know when do you be, need to be more restrictive than you were to accomplish redemption. You may even have to have the courage to sign up for martyrdom. Why in the world would anybody sign up for their own murder? What, what could possibly possess someone to say, this is accomplishing something that's good. <laughs> I will sign up for my own murder. What it really takes is an awareness through the Holy Spirit, through the community, through the trajectory that Christ established for us, following the lead of the early church all the way through its history to say, oh, you know what happens when martyrdom occurs? You know the effect of that? As opposed to the effect of me just reading political stuff and calling the guy a fool? Think of the difference there. That's what Jesus is doing. Incident, just to spread it out, I'll try to say it this way in some little sentences. The law stands firm as the foundation for community living. Jesus never takes the law down. He never relaxes it, and in fact says if you relax it, you're completely missing the point. Only Jesus could fulfill the law in his life and death and go beyond keeping the law. He's the only one who ends up qualified to describe this first person. Only a complete fulfillment of the law provides the foundation for, listen to this, true freedom to exceed the law. Now that the law has been fulfilled, it's not the issue anymore. We now have the freedom of choice to go way beyond the law. If you're afraid that redemptive thinking, some of the the mechanisms that Jim and I have, have used in the process over the last few years to teach from here. If you think that's a slippery slope towards just relaxing everything and making everything easier, you've missed the point completely. Sometimes it would be way harder to be a Christian, a devoted follower of Jesus, than it would be to not. And the fourth thing is this, only a devoted disciple of Jesus in the kingdom of God can live beyond the law because of the guidance of the Spirit working within the community and with individual kingdom of God type people. It's the only way this can happen. It's the only mechanism. If we're just going to say, let's write a new law, how many churches have written 
new laws. And it's like, oh, you can't wear jeans on Sunday. That's the way that we'll be more righteous. Oh, you can't say this. You can't drink alcohol. You can't do this. You can't do that. We find all these other restrictions that we add in as if the Bible didn't have enough. Or we take all of them and we just try to be nice to people, but so we throw them out. No, don't throw them out. Don't relax them. Don't automatically just feel like we've got to do those to please God. In fact, we've got a much, much nuanced, complicated, amazing experience as we participate in redemption with Jesus Christ. That's what this is looking like. That's what these next several chapter, or verses and sections will tell us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thanks so much for... Those sound trivial, those uh, and trite, those words. Because when we really think about what you really have in mind with the, the way the interaction works between human beings and then between God and human beings, it's far more complicated than we'll ever even know or be aware of. And yet you didn't come to give us impossible things to do. Make it harder. What you did was say, I will fulfill... And then you're included in. Come, join the kingdom, be a part. This is your only chance, in effect, to be as one of the blessed ones that you described at the beginning of this chapter. Thank you so much for your grace, for your love for us. And uh, we offer ourselves to you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.